Hello and welcome to the We Are Habs podcast, the show that lifts the lid on some of the old girls and boys who, after leaving haberdashers, have made their mark on the world. I'm Elliot Gotkin, Meadows, 87 to 94. I'm a journalist, master of ceremonies and host of the FN Tech podcast. My guest today is a world-renowned historian, author and Columbia University Professor of History and Art History. A familiar face on British and American TV screens, he's currently working on a history of vaccines. Simon Sharma, welcome to the We Are Habs podcast. Hello, pleasure. Uh, how, how are things where you are right now? Uh, peaceful, just the occasional song of a blackbird in the garden behind me. I'm in London right now, so. Sounds, sounds very tranquil. I, I've got a kind of broad question, I guess, to ask uh, to begin with, which obviously you're a very well-known historian. Um, I mean, how, how would you define history? What, what's the purpose of, of history? Just to understand human behavior better. Really, I mean, in that sense, it's indistinguishable from the truths you might get out of great fiction, Tolstoy, for example, or even poetry. Um, I, I, what I don't believe is that history necessarily presents you with some sort of, you know, grid of certainty. You can learn lessons from the past, but as you know, George Santayana and others have said, but but it's it's. Mark Twain put it put it very well. It, this is very interesting. It's a quotation which has long been attributed to Mark Twain, but none of us can actually find Mark Twain saying it. it what it says is that um, is that history never repeats itself, but it does sometimes rhyme. And I think I think that, that you know that's that pretty much nails it. Actually, you you do have some sense of how not to do things, so it can instill a kind of cautionary sensibility. Um, I mean, if you take, for example, the, one of the founding texts of Western history, Thucydides' Peloponnesian War. Um, Thucydides was himself an unsuccessful general who was kind of sacked for not doing well enough. So he had some sort of animus, but it enabled him also to write both as a participant and someone who was looking dispassionately at all the blunders, particularly the great climax of the book, which is the catastrophic expedition to Sicily, which really wrecks the Athenian empire and causes all sorts of unanticipated grief, catastrophe and massacre. Uh, so his sense was obviously there was something in that great book about what not to do. Um, but it was also, also a sort of sense in which history could be a gadfly for the complacent, actually, um, that it was always meant to be a debate. And the debate was meant to be something which revealed um, the follies and weaknesses, as well as the strengths, virtues, and heroic aspects of, of human behavior. Um, you know, these days, when history is being misused from Russia to some parts of the United States and pretty much everywhere you look, one thing I think historians who are truly kind of faithful to their equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath, it should never be an exercise in self-congratulation. It's never been any good when it's been that. It's not meant to be the genealogy of the wonderfulness of us now, really. So history is the enemy of complacent, consolatory myth. It's not meant to send us to sleep happy. It's meant to keep us, it, it's a recipe for sort of virtuous insomnia, really, or candid insomnia. That's that's what it's supposed to do. So it's a dangerous discipline. It's not, it's not a kind of walk down, you know, memory lane, co heavily costumed as Henry VIII. Not that there's anything wrong with histories of Henry VIII, but it's a disturbing, it should be, a disturbing kind of um, questioning, aggravating exercise. Wow, well, what a wonderful answer to, to kick off with. Uh, and, and of course, you're, you're a university professor, you write books. Uh, in fact, uh, I must confess, I haven't read them, but I put them here on my bookshelf just, you know, <laughs> just to make it appropriate. Um, you write books, you produce- You want to rephrase that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, I think this is almost a shelf what, that what, I haven't got what, around to yet. What guilty students usually say, um, you know, <laughs> the equivalent of what you just said is when you ask them whether they read the book you assigned them, and they said, no, but I've looked at it. So I said, well, did it look back at you? You know, how was it? That <laughs> anyway, yeah. It, it is on my list, but it's in good company with Don Quixote and Moby Dick and a couple of oh, others. Oh, yeah. well, none better. <laughs> yeah. They're meaning to get to. But as I say, you are a university professor, you write oh. books, you produce and present TV shows. How do you divide your time? I mean, it would seem that there 
you know, it isn't enough time in a day for, for you to kind of do all of these things. I know lots of coffee, really, um, although I'm scaling back on that. Um, it, it really, you, one does it sort of serially, I suppose. I mean, television is such um, a demanding master, really, but it's sort of, you know, it doesn't come along the whole time, really. It's not like you do, you have months between and you pitch a series. Um, and then when you do it, you know, you're working pretty carefully on what the script's going to be like and what the locations are. Um, but it's sort of steady state and then suddenly a very, very intensive engagement, whether you're actually filming, or whether you're as I help out with editing, um, when nothing else, you can't really be doing anything else at all. You know, teaching, um, I, the, the thing about a university professor in America is that you're not a member of a department actually. You, you, you can teach, you have to teach, but you, have to, you can teach when and how you want. I, I tend to teach in, I mostly teach in the School of Writing actually at Columbia now, um, in the Graduate School of Writing. And I, I have a number of pupils in my non-fiction writing seminar who can fit into my study, which means say I don't need another university lecture room. So I can logistically work it round some of the other things I do. So I don't know, I suppose, you know, I'm someone who kind of, kind of quite likes, responds to the, the, you know, enforced quickening you have to do. Much, much more demanding, even on time, as I'm also um, contributing editor of the FT. And there you really have to write to fierce deadlines, actually. I, for example, one Duke of Edinburgh, I'm a kind of house historian for the FT, as well as, you know, other things. Um, but um, when the Duke of Edinburgh died, they needed a, a piece in, in less than 24 hours, quite a long piece. Um, so have to do that. I, I suppose, it, it, I, I will say that you, you're right that none of that is very healthy for sustained book writing. So I do tend to kind of try and pull down the shutters, particularly when in America, I'm not in New York City, we live about 30 miles north of New York City. And there, you know, surrounded, if not actually buried under all the books and all the material I have, um, I, I can kind of shut down somewhat all, all the other bits of business. But I like these, I mean, it's, it's a sort of huge, um, you know, it's, it, it's really um, fantastically, one's fantastically lucky to be able to do all these different things. I also curate art shows, did one, um, you know, for the Chinese Imperial Museum in Beijing um, a while back. And um, I guess I like all these multiple jobs or else I wouldn't do them, I guess. Right, and as a, as a, as a freelancer, although somewhat less uh, repute than your good self, you know, obviously there are some things that one would enjoy presumably more than others, obviously the We Are Haps podcast being my favorite. Uh, what, what is it that you um, derive most enjoyment from? I don't know if it's like having children and you don't have a, a, a favorite among them, but do you like, prefer writing books or? I recommend grandchildren. I'm, I'm not the first to do this, particularly during COVID. When COVID hit, um, my daughter and son-in-law live in Brooklyn. And at that time, really, I remember my son-in-law saying, well, every five minutes you heard an ambulance. Um, and and it was, it was, New York was incredibly badly hit. I mean, famously, there were improvised mortuaries and really, really terrible things. So it was very, very difficult, if not impossible. So the, the, I have three little grandsons and, um, and their mum and dad moved in with us. And um, that was a kind of sense of hectic vitality. We're on the edge, we're, we live in the suburbs, but sort of on the edge of a more rural kind of upstate New York, just there's plenty of, you know, nature to be, to enjoy. So, um, you know, grand grandchildren are, it makes you also as a historian, it makes you reflect sometimes wistfully and sometimes anxiously about the future. Um, but mostly it allows you to reconnect with the eight-year-old inside you, which has never really gone very far away in my case. I also like cooking. Cooking is the way I unwind. Actually, I do a lot of cooking. I was actually the cookery writer for GQ magazine for of years. None of your restaurant reviews, hardcore recipes. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, I guess so you had more people to, uh, to cook for when you're... Uh... But I mean, in terms of uh, professionally, do, do you kind of, you get most enjoyment out of the writing of the books, of the TV, of the kind they're of... Different, you know, they're different exercises. I think probably in the end, um, 
you know, the, I, I suppose with this current book I'm working on really about public health and the beginnings of vaccines at the end of the 19th century, not including smallpox, um, vaccines against cholera and bubonic plague, for example, which was an extraordinary story. Um, there, you know, books very often as you move through them, they take on a life of their own. You're in a dialogue with the changing nature of what you'd planned. That's certainly so in the case of this book and, and actually a number of books that I've written. It was certainly true of The Embarrassment of Riches. It was certainly true of Landscape and Memory, which was the hardest book to write, but may be the one that will last longest, I think. Um, so that is a very kind of profound and mysterious and and when you have a good morning writing that's not just laying the words on the page, but when sentences somehow manage to dance a bit, you know, that's a fantastic feeling. Um, but that's not to diss writing for television, which um, which is a totally different exercise, you know, because, I mean, in the book, obviously, you're doing a lot of scene painting, really. You're doing a lot of kind of putting yourself in the place. The scene painting is going to be done by the camera, and therefore it needs to be a much more economical, um, and you, you endlessly play with the commentary, the voiceover script, you endlessly play with that. Sometimes you don't get that right until you're actually in a recording studio. Um, so it's, uh, but the pleasure of television is um, if you're lucky enough to have the right creative colleagues, which I have been over many, many years now, it's a joyously collaborative thing really. And that, that's a very nice thing to happen. And whether it is TV or whether it's the books, you know, you've obviously covered all sorts of uh, varied subjects, uh, you know, including histories of Britain, America, Dutch culture, um, history of the Jews, which are the two examples I have, uh, two of the volumes on my on my shelf here. Uh, is there any particular subject that you feel most passionate about, that you feel most connected to, and that you perhaps derive most enjoyment from? Well, it's like being asked to choose among your kids, you know, so no, um, really. <laughs> I think it's whatever I'm working on, but, but it's uh, I don't go, I, I don't reread myself very much unless there's, um, you know, a translation in the language with which I'm familiar sort of suddenly coming out, then I will reread. And sometimes you cringe and flinch and think, I couldn't possibly have written that. You know, the translators made it up. And unfortunately, you have committed that particular piece of dullness or egregious, you know, sort of, I don't know, badly written stuff. Um, so I, I don't I don't sort of review and I, I certainly don't the 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 crucial thing is really um to make sure you're engaged on a kind of psychologically emotional level almost with the subject as well as a cerebral intellectual one. That's been the case with everything I've done. I mean all the books I've done really when I've when I've been writing them. But I mean there are there are you know strands. Uh, it often takes people who are um, who've condemned themselves to being examining my stuff, you know, have pointed it out. And then, uh, um, but I've been interested in issues of what you might call shared allegiance, really. Um, for that's true of the embarrassment of riches, where, you know, the, the improbability of this place which existed and thrived in the most uncongenial geographic world, you know, constantly worried about being flooded, invaded, fighting wars, somehow became the most successful and certainly the richest power in the world in an extraordinary short period of time, not to mention producing Vermeer and Rembrandt and, and co. And so I always wondered really what, I mean, my first book was about how that miracle really disintegrated under the impact of the French Revolution. Um, so I really wanted to, um, write a book about what held them together. And I knew it couldn't be done through an account of institutions or, or formal politics. And it had to be done about what made people in that little country of the Dutch Republic recognize each other as sisters and brothers, really. And that led me to eating and the way families were brought up and the relationship between the, this odd sense in which the Dutch felt themselves to be reenactors of the the Hebrew exodus and so on, that sort of thing. So that was about national allegiance. The French Revolution book really, you know, turns out to be a book about nationalism as much as it does about social equality and social inequality and the exhilaration and catastrophe of the full-on Jacobin revolution. Um, you know, a book I wrote called The American Future, a history ditto. So, and Story of the Jews, of course, you know, has been, been partly 
an exercise in what made a share, shared identity when you're robbed of all the things that usually you know, power monuments, territory, and so on. So I suppose, you know, it's a very kind of Jewish preoccupation, really. And um, uh, so, so that's, that's been a constant theme, I think, really. And, and being Jewish, and I get born in 1945, which was obviously yeah. a, a, a somewhat significant year in history. Um, I don't know, did you feel that in a way that this was your, your destiny to kind of, you know, be, be looking at all of these kind of major historical uh, events and trying to understand them and... Uh... Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was really. My father was deeply interested. I'm, the crucial thing about my dad and his historical stories was that, you know, the survival of Jews in England for him was very connected with Winston Churchill's sense of a particular destiny for for the island. And, and so he had these sort of two providential obsessions really British and, and Jewish together and um, and I think he conveyed a lot of that the first serious present in forms of books he gave me were before I was really of an age to wade through them were, were Churchill's history of the English-speaking peoples but he he also treated the Bible as a kind of you know, historical chronicle, which those who wrote the Book of Kings and Book of Chronicles also thought was 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 the case. So those things were were hand in hand, really, and they made you know in in the late nineteen forties and very early fifties, they made a kind of you know deep impression on me. But I but for a large part of you know my professional career, I didn't particularly want to write Jewish history. I mean, I, I carried a lot of it inside me. But I, part of history's allure for me was writing about people who aren't you, who aren't like you. So even though the second book I wrote about the Rothschild family and their very odd and but very important engagement in the Yeshuv in the Jewish settlement of Palestine, um, even before there was any kind of political Zionist movement, um, that I tried it out and I was quite uncomfortable doing. That's the one book I was a bit uncomfortable writing. I thought I was sort of too close to everything. Um, and I guess the, ne yeah, the next book I wrote was about the Netherlands, you know, with which I had no connection whatsoever, really. Even though the last three letters of my name, AMA, um, is a very common ending in Friesland, in the very distinctive province of the north of the Netherlands. So when I go there, they call me Minir Schama and they assume I'm a Fries, um, <laughs> so, which is very flattering of them. But I'm which not. is like the OBE equivalent of the Netherlands, is it, or something? Is like the what? Is this like the OBE equivalent of the Netherlands or something? How do you mean, no, a Fries? The, the letters, the AMA. Oh, I see. Oh, OBE. Um, yeah, I suppose so. Yes, 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 I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, looking back now, uh, and obviously, you know, there's plenty to look forward to, I know, but uh, look, looking back now, what would you say uh, was the book or the, 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 the study or whatever it was that, that kind of put you on the map and kind of, I guess, elevated you, um, you know, in terms of the way that people know you uh, from, like from other uh, historians um, who perhaps uh, mainly focus well, on I think it was probably the embarrassment of riches, yeah. Although I did win the Wolfson Prize for Patriots and Liberators. I was very lucky. My first book, which was about the collapse of the Netherlands during the French Revolution, and I got incredibly nice reviews everywhere for that and won the Wolfson Prize. But it wasn't, but Citizens was a bestseller for a long time, came out in the year of the French Revolution. Um, it, it, was, it was written after the embarrassment of riches, which took nearly 10 years to write. And my wonderful agent, who I miss, who died a few years ago, Michael Sissons, took me out to lunch. And as we were both picking over bits of Dover Soul, he said, OK, Simon, this book on the French Revolution has to come out in 1989. In other words, in the centennial year of the French Revolution, you know, uh, fix me with a beady stare. And I said, it will, it will, I, you know, clenching my fork. Um, and it did. it did. I got it. It was extraordinary. I've been lecturing on the French Revolution for a very long time at Cambridge in particular. And um, it just all came pouring out, really. I went to France for a bit, but mostly there was an extraordinary collection of very unusual French revolutionary materials at Harvard when, where I was teaching then, um, which weren't the usual things. They were collections of broad broadsheets and newspapers, some quite rare newspapers, songbooks, um, even books about, um, you know, politically correct 
costume design, for example. Um, so extraordinary things I could pick up on. So I wrote it in a great, great rush, really. It didn't take long for, for that book to be written. Um, others, so, but again, um, they, they do different things. You know, um, the Citizens was um, a narrative with lots of questions and arguments. Whereas landscape and memory is really a kind of deep meditation on the relationship between human activity and the natural world, really. So um, that also, I, you know, won the won literary awards and things, um, which I'm very lucky to have happened. But um, I, I, it, it actually introduced me to a lot of artists and art critics who became my friends. I became the art critic of the New Yorker magazine, for example. It, that landscape of memory really changed my life. And the more we, you know, dive into our environmental distress, the more important that. That was the one book I knew I really, it was what I called my kind of, you know, lorry bumper book. I mean, I thought if you step into the road and there's a lorry coming around the corner and it's bound to hit you, what's the one book as you fall beneath it and, you know, exit the world, you say, damn, I wish I'd written that. And that, that would have been landscape of memory, I have to say. Okay. And of course, another major historical thing that has been unfolding, you know, uh, under our very eyes over the last couple of years is, is the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, yeah. I know some people, you know, you, you listen to kind of certain people kind of talking, oh, it was like heaven for them to be kind of locked yeah. down and just kind yeah. of get away from people. Uh, and other people who perhaps, you know, you have all this time under lockdown, but it's very hard to be inspired to kind of be productive in your writing and the like. How did COVID Im impact you? Aside yeah, I, was from you to say? I, I was absolutely in group two. Um, there were a lot of, particularly writers, I think, actually, there were indeed writers that have, you know, wonderful, no one's going to bother me, don't have to go to some boring commissions. Not me. Uh, I don't know if I ever thought that really, but I depend, the kind of writing I do depends on street traffic, it depends on personal presence, depends on looking at body language, even if I'm writing about something that happened 200 years ago, the oxygen of it, really, the creativity of it, depends a lot on being surrounded by the social world. And I just ran into sand, really. I was, I, you know, I could turn out words, particularly for my newspaper, you know, because you contracted to do that. Um, but I, I did completely change the nature of the book project. I was working on a book about, might Lucy speak called again, the culture of nationalism, about music and landscape in the 19th century and sport. Um, and I just got less and less involved less and less engaged in that or it, it didn't come to life in the way I wanted it to and then I was thinking about internationalism and then I that led me to um, the website of the World Health Organization which has a kind of slightly amazingly learned rather dull but fusty introduction to the way the first international public health organization got started in the middle of the 19th century it's called in a series of so-called international sanitary conferences mostly called to deal with the, with cholera which was absolutely horrendous killer and one of the figures involved in that who's very important was the novelist Marcel Proust's father Adrian Proust and I thought wow this is extremely interesting he's just existed this slightly kind of caricatured um, bad-tempered doctor father of Marcel Proust which turns out again not to be the case um, and that and I was sort of led by the nose by that discovery into thinking about actually how did nationalism and internationalism play out in a world which you would suppose needed a coordinated response to terrifying disease really and um i sort of went on went on from there and then i started to be able to write notwithstanding lockdown or at least i did very intensive research and um the thing began to live you know even though but it made a big difference when lockdown eased and i could actually the first trip i came back to london and um yeah uh, that that made a huge difference just in terms of the kind of creative, imaginative energy. Um, Zoom is like talking, even though I'm sure we're doing a crackerjack job. Um, uh, Zoom is like talking through a veil or a scrim or some ways, you know, I mean, it wasn't the same. But we all, we all were very grateful for it. I mean, I can't imagine what the world would be like if it had to go through what we've been through without the internet, you know, which obviously people did in 
in um, in 1918 and at other moments. But. Right, and I, and I and I guess this is partly leading to your uh, history of vaccines that you're you're working on, yeah. on yeah. right now. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, what uh, you know, we obviously see what's going on in terms of vaccination campaigns, in terms of anti-vaxxers, how it's been become so politicised, especially in the United States. Um, what, what do you make of the situation now, and 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 is this kind of rhyming with with previous? Uh, pandemics and the like and other like newfound uh, medicines and, and vaccines what, what how do you it's more like blank verse i suppose actually i mean I, the, the the whole middle of the book is about a terrifying outbreak of bubonic plague in india um from 1896 onwards in fact essentially in the 1890s but it ended up taking 12 million lives worldwide before streptomycin was invented in the 19 um in the 19 20s or specifically in 1926. Um, and um, the British then in the year of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897, found themselves between two extraordinary pressures. On the one hand, they really didn't want the enormous economic powerhouse that was Bombay in particular, now Mumbai, to kind of just close down, but they were forced to do so. In fact, they felt themselves forced to take absolutely draconian measures really to seal people off and particularly to sort of um, bring a kind of military style disinfection campaign to the poorer parts of the city where the epidemic was raging most fiercely. But that involved um, literally sometimes demolishing whole streets, demolishing houses, um, uh, examining corpses um, of people who just died. That was a profound violation of both Hindu and Muslim traditions and beliefs. And um, it had an enormous backlash, not from people in, in Bombay who didn't believe they were facing a serious disease, but were very hostile actually to the rough edge of this so-called sanitation campaign. It also happened in Hong Kong just a couple of years before. And the medical profession itself was not was only just beginning to be aware of pathogenesis of actually um let alone the you know the what the immune system did had only been discovered in the 1880s and the understanding of what microbes could do whether they're bacillus or bacteria bacteriology was really in its infancy and the medical profession particularly the the, the white british medical profession was really wedded to this notion that you really had that that epidemic diseases lurked in poor sanitation, because that had been partly the correct lesson about, about cholera, but it was not true, of course, of, you know, uh, uh, it was not true of bubonic plague, and it was certainly not true, not true of other viral epidemics which come along. Um, so vaccination, actually, as a prophylactic, something that would prevent whole neighborhoods, whole districts, whole cities from going down for the count was a way out of that. Of course, you wanted to clean up in sanitary conditions, um, but essentially vaccination was seen, um, you know, as a kind of golden bullet. And it turned out that vaccination against bubonic plague was most successful in mitigating severity rather than actually rather than actually prophylactically preventing infection. And another area where which really sounds very much like today is that it was crucial that communal leaders, particularly religious communal leaders, were recruited to the side of the vaccine. And in some communities, the Parsi community, the Jewish community um, in Bombay, that was the case. Um, it was much more difficult with the Hindu community in particular. In fact, Hindu nationalism began in Pune, um, in, in the city of Pune, where the, the British Commissioner for Sanitation was assassinated in, on Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee Celebration Day. An amazing thing. Hindu nationalism, in a militant way, really got started during the plague. So infection and epidemic became a kind of cradle for modern politics in all sorts of ways which you know ring all kinds of bells i mean there are little bits of the book which are about now but essentially i'm leaving the reader to see the connections and the differences for themselves right well very very timely uh, uh subject to be uh, to be writing about um i want to change tack slightly now uh, simon and kind of 
going to you and your your time at Habs. Uh, I mean, you're, you're uh, mature enough to have gone to Habs back in the day when it was in Cricklewood, I believe, in North London. Yeah. Uh, I think you went there thanks to a scholarship. I love your euphemism, mature, meaning <laughs> really, really old. Actually, <laughs> just certainly true. Yeah, Westbear Road. Yeah. I loved Westbear Road. And you, and you had a uh, you went there thanks to a scholarship, I think. Um, did you think that had a major impact in changing the kind of trajectory of your life? I mean, if you hadn't gone to, uh, you know, a school of, of the caliber of Habs, thanks to the scholarship, you, you might have, you know, I mean, presumably you would have thrived at a comprehensive as well. But uh, did you think that had a major but, impact? But we'll never know, will we? Um, what is <laughs> true was that, um, you know, there are a dazzling uh, bunch of teachers. Some, um, it, it was very interesting because I, I, I went to the West Bay Road Habs in 1956. There were a lot of people who served in the war. One of my history teachers, Ian Lister, um, was in the Navy. And there were a lot of kind of maverick teachers. And then there were a lot of much more traditional teachers, really. And the, the mavericks really displaced a lot of water. And they were thrilling, really, to be taught by. Then there was, the, you know, the great Roy Avery, um, who is still around, you know, in his 90s. And it was an astonishing teacher, really. I mean, I, um, he, he, was an, he was amazing at both making you tackle important questions, but also kind of putting you in the historical situation, whether it was a rivalry between Gladstone and Disraeli or um, the Risorgimento. He taught a special subject on the Italian Risorgimento, which was kind of thrilling. He was very good in American history. Um, but there were a lot of really absolutely wonderful teachers. As I said, there were others who I remember all too vividly um, who were less wonderful and, <laughs> and uh, much more, um, I don't know, much more unnecessarily severe. So, you know, the, what happened to Britain in the 60s, famously, irreverent and, um, you know, very imaginatively dynamic was already present in the kind of teachers we had. And... Um, it was it was absolutely thrilling. I mean, we loved Westbury Road because it was it was it's such a crap place, really. It was so broken down. The world around it, Crystalwood, was grungy. We were we were avid for grunge. Um, you know, we used to invent uh, houses look particularly dodgy as being nests of vice and crime. That was wonderful for us, really. But we had amazing teachers. There was a lot of very great English teachers as well. And for a long time, I was suspended between whether I should do English and, or history at university. At Westbury Road, there was a man called Bill Nicholas, um, whose girlfriend had invented a renegade television cat called Pussycat Willem, who was really at a time when small puppets on television were supposed to lead children to exemplary and virtuous behavior. Pussycat Willem was famous for... He was, he was a small delinquent puppet TV cat. He lied and cheated and laughed. And we all, and Bill Nicholas used to, people wrote to Pussycat Willem um, and Pussycat saying, unfortunately, I have to go and have my appendix out. And Pussycat Willem were right back, dear Barbara, I'm very sorry to hear this. So Bill Nicholas, we would, uh, of the kind of hour of dealing with Jared, we would do Jared Manley Hopkins poetry. We'd do very, very hardcore English or T.S. Eliot. The second half hour, we'd be writing letters to little Barbara and little Martin, actually. But that was just wonderful for us. Um, in When we moved to Elstree, I, I sort of grudgingly moved. I thought it was kind of sellout going to, you know, the sort of suburban pastoral world, really, of Elstree. But I kind of got used to it, not least because you got to ride the Northern Line with dazzling girls from the North London Collegiate. That was a huge plus, I have to say. Um, there was another extraordinary teacher um, called Simon Stewart, who uh, really, I don't know if he, he, that name is, uh, he, he ought to be a legend. There ought to be, I know, bust for him. He had a very handsome Roman face. And uh, he was an astonishing teacher. He was a levisite. He got us to really read intensely and closely the, the poems of the great tradition. John Donne, for example, I went on to make a film about John Donne. And um, the first lesson we had from Simon Stewart, we went into a room and the desks had been basically, yeah, all the desks had been removed completely. I don't know where they went to. And there were just chairs, you know, in a circle, really. And, and he was sitting there, he was sitting on a table, entirely in black, 
He looked very much like the actor Christopher Plummer. They could have been separated at birth as twins. So he was very handsome, very charismatic, very aristocratic, slightly strange military career, um, sexually ambiguous, I would have thought, really. And um, he was sitting there dressed all in black. And, and the, the, the work of the morning was Hamlet. And he was sitting there like Hamlet about to burst into a soliloquy. I don't think he did actually burst into a soliloquy. Um, but this was immediately extraordinarily magnetic. But he was a hard taskmaster as well. I remember actually, you know, you would, you would go through line by line, Henry IV by one or something like that. And for the next three lessons, you'd be listening to um, Bach, Mozart and Beethoven masses and just be required to talk, even though you knew nothing about classical music about what you just heard. I remember we just were listening to the Sanctus and Benedictus in the Bach B minor mass, Mozart's Requiem, um, pretty sure it's Beethoven. We went, we went on, and this was, um, it, it was amazing. I can't imagine that of someone like him having, he had taught, I think, at Stowe. In fact, I know he had, but I felt, my God, you know, he really taught me to write. Roy Avery taught me how to be a historian. Simon Stewart really, taught me how to be a writer. He gave me both freedom and discipline. But he was so angry um, that I chose to do history at Cambridge. That, he, that uh, you know, he refused to kind of correspond with me for a long time. And then very touchingly, he was going through his late father, um, his late father's possessions. His, his father had actually committed suicide with an antique gun. Um, this is not your ordinary kind of school teaching world. And he found a letter that his father had written by Lafayette. And he and my book on citizens, I think, had just come out. And Simon Stewart sent me the letter, which I still have and treasure, um, signed by Lafayette. And also it was Lafayette introducing a young French artist to Peter Dupont in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, and that was a kind of peacemaker between us and we we saw each other a few times actually before Simon himself died so he he was the sort of person Tom Taylor the headmaster who seemed on the face of it a very conventional headmaster very nice man but he had a staggering talent for recruiting dynamics sort of dynamite teaching staff really staggering talent for doing that people quite unlike him who would upset the apple cart every time you walked into a classroom. So this gives you a sense of what difference Habs made to my life without any question. What, what wonderful, uh, vivid uh, uh, memories of, of your time there. Um, that, that, uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but the people we interview on this podcast are always shocked when I kind of put these uh, questions with very detailed uh, knowledge of some of the things I got up to thanks to the uh, archivists at uh, both the boys and, and the girls school. Unfortunately, they didn't dig up a lot on you. Um, so I'm just wondering uh, what, what it is, <laughs> if it's like kind of one of those things that are missing because there was something really, really... Uh, oh, well, I can tell uh, you what that was missing. Um, I, was, I was a very junior editor. I probably wrote a little bit, but not very much. On, is, is there still something? Is the school changes? Skylark. Is it still Skylark? Yes. It is. Okay. Well, it certainly was at Westbury Road. And there was a figure, a very flinty sixth former, maybe he was a fifth former at that time, who we all worshipped. He was, he was flinty in a kind of fiercely leftist, really, socialist, communist way called Lawrence um, Orbach, whose father was an MP, it was a sort of left-wing Labour MP. And Lawrence actually um, was under cover of editing Skylark, wrote um, a literally seditious broadsheet against the British government policy in Cyprus. Um, really, uh, it was called Perspectives, and it only had one perspective, which was kind of profound, furious hostility against the British campaign against the AOCA nationalist stroke terrorist campaign. And um, there was a day, and we, we were, uh, Mr. Sanderson, who was a very sweet man, who ran Skylark and was a school librarian teacher, unbeknownst to him, you know, there was this kind of um, dangerously seditious um, enterprise going on. And Lawrence was expelled. One, you know, MI5 or something came to the school and said, you seem to have a young man causing 
dangerous trouble. And because of his connection to his father, even the sort of violating the Official Secrets Act in some way, I don't know. This was sensationally exciting to us. Sorry to see him, I have to say. Um, but that was that probably hasn't made it into the school archive, but it was. And then, I mean, there were so many things that were very dramatic and completely unforgettable. Um, yeah, I mean, some of them, some of them probably don't bear repeating, but um, oh, well, I mean, we're more than happy for you to repeat them here if they're particularly exciting. Well, there was, there was, because he's dead, and I suppose, and it was tragic, it was, you know, tragic, and one never knows the truth of it. There was a wonderful geography teacher, and I, I won't, I won't mention his name, because he's got family and children, but he was, we all thought he was fantastic, and he was a fantastic teacher, but he was, he was suddenly declared by the headmaster to be ill, and was missing from school and never came back. And I suspect that it was because he was gay and he may have behaved, to put it mildly, inappropriately. With didn't hit on me, I have to say. Not that I took offense. But um, so, um, but I suspect that was true. And there was something definitely profoundly tragic about that whole moment. And we talked about it. And we're talking about the time when, I mean, obviously no teacher should go near their students, but it was the time when really even the faintest shadow, you know, who knows if that was true or not, but um, it was the time of the Wolfenden Report and the time when the debate over the criminalization, the decriminalization of homosexuality was, um, was going on. So there was a sense in which Habs, I'd say, was it definitely was not just schools. I hope, and I'm sure it's probably not the case, but we locked into the zeitgeist, absolutely, you know, whether it was kind of mad revolutionary underground politics taking place in the school library, or that the issue that I've been talking about, I mean, I was a older master and, you know, the campaign for nuclear disarmament was very, very strong at school. Um, and it, 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 it was very kind of electrically wired to these rather tumultuous changes, you know, from Suez onwards. I arrived at Westbury Road in the year of Suez. Um, and that, that was, so it was very worldly in that way. And actually your studies, you know, the, the seriousness and intensity of your engagement with a particular study was kind of, um, you know, it was, it was, energized by the sense in which I know for school can make a difference, but the school wasn't kind of closed off to the world. It was a sort of um, receiving station for everything that was, you know, dynamically changing in, in Britain itself and the world too. And did you, you were always a, a good student, kind of kept your head down. Did you get into any, any trouble? Oh, um, I, I'm sure I've repressed that. I don't think, well, no, I, I, no, only minor trouble. What, another wonderful teacher who people remember, I'm sure very well, called Otto Pask, who was a fantastic French teacher, an enormous man, larger than life. He affected scarlet braces, suspender braces, and, and loudly striped shirts, and was a jazz pianist. He would burst into Fats Waller, actually. Sometimes uh, there was a piano in the room, and I, you know, we get a after dealing with Albert Camus, we get a we get Honeysuckle Rose from Otto. He called me the gas bag, actually, um, and because I I wouldn't shut up. And in fact, I I did have now you now you remind me, I held the school record for consecutive detentions, actually, awarded by another English teacher who was not Simon Stewart for simply refusing to shut up, actually. I think it was 12 in a row. Um, so it became a thing about how many consecutive detentions could I get, actually. Um, wow. I'm sure the record has never been broken, actually. That, that anyway. should definitely be on your Wikipedia bio next to your bibliography and all the television productions that you've worked on. Yeah, it should. So I was, I, the gas bag was, was, I often thought if I wrote my memoirs, which I'm sometimes urged to do, I'd call it gas bag, actually. So. Yeah. And I mean, you've talked a bit about like the amazing history teachers and how I think uh, it was your English teacher who wasn't particularly pleased that you went off to do to do history. I mean, wh when did you realise at what moment was it that you realised that history was your calling? Well, I'm still I'm still nearly all the writing I've done has been a kind of denial uh, that there's a, a separation between really strong literary writing. 
um, and the writing of history. And what I felt when I made that decision, I remember if if Roy is listening, bless him, he will remember, um, you know, a walk we had when he he persuaded me really that that I, I should really do history rather than English. I, I did feel that I could do. Um, you know, I could I could be a literary writer. That sounds very pretentious, but you know, really inventive and imaginative writer, um, while dealing with worlds that were true, really, rather than worlds that were invented. Um, I wrote I've, I've written one piece of fiction, but it was a piece of fiction about writing history, Dead Certainties, um, and there were people who refused to believe it was fiction, even though I say <laughs> very clearly this is a work of fiction. Um, and so I, th I think that was the, that was the right decision, really. I, th I think the kind of, you know, the sort of spark plug bit really comes from knowing the worlds I'm dealing with are actually there, were actually there. Um, and then, you know, the other bit of spark. So how do you actually make people forget they're living in 2000 and you know, 22, and instead are living in 1789 or 1652 or something. So I think probably that was right for me, but it's too late to change now. You were, what, 15, 16, older, younger? When well, you realised this? I didn't, I didn't really make a final decision about whether I wanted to be a fiction writer until, you know, going to university, yeah. until really applying to do history so it would have been 17 or something like that i guess and when you very... know, sorry when you told your you know parents sorry, sorry. Wanted... go ahead honey. <laughs> that's all right the joys of, uh, of time delays when you kind of you know told your parents for example you wanted to be a historian and to you know study and research and write about history and the like uh, were they great that's wonderful news was it kind of you know can't you be a lawyer what, what was the what was the kind of reaction yeah, well, yeah very very interesting you say that uh, my father both my father and mother were extraordinary storytellers really um, but my father was someone who'd wanted to go to the theater he was profoundly engaged and took me to the theater all the time and his father said no you've got to go into the family business um, he said if you go into the theater don't come home again and which terrible things say, horrible, horrible things say. I never knew my father's father. He died before, but I, if I had known him, I'd have given him what for. What was the family business, I, Simon? Pardon? What was the family business? Oh, Schmutters, inevitably. It was textiles, you know, it was buying. I mean, that, there was wonderful things. My father used to take me on buying trips to Northern Ireland between the Troubles and to Lancashire and to Manchester, and I actually loved that. And I think, actually, the, the first moment where I understood art actually was in a loom shed in Bury, I think it was, or Bolton, somewhere like that, when I saw, you know, this deafening clatter of um, mechanical looms, saw yarn resolving itself into these gorgeous fabrics, really. When I started to be interested in abstract art, you know, I understood immediately what was going on there. So it wasn't, wasn't entirely a negative experience, but for my dad, he really was uh, just... He thought one of the gifts, one of the pieces of luck about being British was Shakespeare and Dickens. He read to us from Dickens every Sunday at tea time, actually. And he and I went right through the Shakespeare corpus when I was about 14, doing all the parts, you know, together from Two Gentlemen of Verona to Cymbeline or Pericles of Tyre, very boring place. But we got through it all together. So on one hand, you know, Simon Stewart, and the other hand, had my father. So he was he was overjoyed about that. My mother was was less so. Um, was more as mothers are wont to be anxious, and always. And my father had a very rocky financial history. We were always, you know, we were often moving. There were suitcase moments, you know, that you never knew when they would come. And so my mother was was keen that really. So actually, I was due in Cambridge to do famously, you know, I did history part one and law, and I was supposed to be doing law part two. And I went to the, to the law library in Cambridge and picked up a, a famous book called Winfield on Tort to see what it was like. And I thought it was simply, it was, it was like going to the dentist or something. It was just excruciating to read. I couldn't believe it was actually a book that anyone would ever read for any reason whatsoever. And I thought, mm, probably you don't want to be a lawyer after all. <laughs> and that was definitely the best decision, one of the best decisions I made in my life. 
Right. Well, it certainly, certainly seems that way. Um, Simon, I've got one more kind of general question than some some specific, uh, you know, kind of um, rapid fire Habs questions. I know we could talk for, for hours um, if, if you had the time and if we uh, and if okay. people had the time to listen. <laughs> but um, I mean, I'm sure many people are familiar uh, with uh, the American political scientist Francis Fukuyama famously writing, I think, in 92, that we were witnessing the end of history. Uh, in oh. other words, the end point of, of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of, of yeah. human government. I mean, the past few years, whether it's America, Hungary, Brazil, and many other places have shown us that this isn't really the case. Um, I know you kind of look more into I know. If one invokes his name, Elliot, you know, he's been the first person to to realize that, isn't that? Right. Okay. I was going to say, I mean, you know, obviously you, you look to history usually for, for, for what you're focusing on, but I'm just wondering what you would think, and obviously it's impossible to say for sure, but what your uh, informed perspective would be on how future historians uh, would view or what they would make of the times we're living in right now. Whoa. Um... Well, if we don't get things right, there won't be any future historians, really. But, you know, let's hope that's not the case. But I think supposing um, one doesn't take an apocalyptic view, um, they will look back on on uh, this particular moment, really, as a moment, as they say, not a word I like, but it is apropos of inflection, really. Um, the issue is whether or not... Um, I, I mean, there, there, are, there are three overwhelming scenarios of trouble aren't there one is the slow death of the planet basically is the is the issue of unsustainability and climate change which is sort of you know deeply profound actually and then there is the the you know the i, I mean maybe there are more than three then then obviously there is the issue of the unpredictability of our relationship with with biology in effect actually the vulnerability both both of those things are you know are not are not unconnected actually um because the a lot of environmental depredation um has yielded the invent you know the the dissolution of the boundary between wild species and us um and almost every major pandemic is it the case that this one was different? I still think not. But Ebola, AIDS, SARS-1, swine fever, avian flu, they've come from zoonotic spillovers. And that's been absolutely aggravated by the kind of catastrophic laying to waste of the environment of wild species. And the invasiveness of wild species, or in the case, for example, of consuming wild species like civets or pangolins, has exposed us to things, uh, to species which have acted as reservoirs for diseases of which we have bitterly and punitively discovered. We have very little control. We have to do sudden catch up. Second crucial issue really is another thing which arises out of environmental catastrophe um, is the collapse of sustaining um, sustaining places of life. I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, let me give you an example, otherwise it's a bit gnomic and obscure. Um, there's been for many, many years a, a, a real collapse in the riparian river system um, of the upper Euphrates and Tigris and Jordan Valley. Um, constant drought um, to the point where it's been impossible for young men who for centuries have worked in agriculture because farms just collapsed, there's no water left. So those young men went in multitudes into um, Antarctica and, um, you know, and Damascus and Erbil and places like that and were absolutely the recruiting pools, both for the Syrian army, but also for ISIS. And uh, so, um, you know, dangerous militarization, actually very dangerous nationalist and terrorist, all sorts of destabilizing forces actually can be generated again by the same fundamental problem. I, I suppose what I would say, you know, about a historian looking back at other generations of historians, I'm still amazed um, how little environmental history there is. There is, you know, in terms of 
I mean, I taught environmental history at Columbia. Uh, don't do any more, but I, I might do again before I retire. Um, ever since landscape and memory, it's been a kind of constant preoccupation of mine. Some of the work in environmental history is most beautifully and dramatically and electrifyingly written work of all. Um, and um, so I'm kind of astonished that that's, I suppose there is this mistake that you, history is entirely about humans and it can't be about trees. I mean, that's absolutely not true. Trees, of course, provide their own very dramatic in tree rings, historical archive. Um, and so that that does seem to me, and when it, uh, there are huge, there are great exceptions to this, of course, there are extraordinary books being written, but um, that whole kind of area of reflecting on the possibility of a human future, geographically and um, and ecologically, environmentally, seems to me, you know, a profound issue. Um, and we'll see, you know, I mean. The example of the anti-vax the anti-vaxxers um, all over the world, not just in Britain and the United States, um, and the example of you know the the Trump administration proved that really what we took for granted growing up in the sovereignty of scientific knowledge or the sovereignty of knowledge has a very very hard job in the world of the internet in in uh, you know in making its authority felt against cultures of belief, many of which are just about revelation and, and rumor elevated into certainty, you know, that Bill Gates is somehow behind the vaccination program that people are injected with 5G receiving chips or something completely insane. And if you were to say when I was at Habs that, uh, you know, that anti-science really would, in the shape of QAnon, something like that, would flourish in the world of the digital future, you would have just been met with incredulousness, really. Habs was a place where it was assumed that the values of the 18th century Enlightenment would automatically prevail. And that's, you know, I suppose it's a question of whether human ingenuity or human stupidity ultimately will determine whether we have a human future. Right. And I suppose what's even more shocking is, is you know, people who seem to be otherwise intelligent people kind of latching onto some of these, uh, these yeah. things and uh, uh, almost, um, you know, kind of giving it more, uh, more oxygen. Yeah. Um, but uh, Simon, I, I've just got a few rapid fire questions for you and then we'll kind okay. of... Uh, wrap things up yeah. and I really appreciate yeah. your, uh, you know, taking the time. So I know you've answered some of these, uh, some of your anecdotes and the like, but uh, uh, here we go. Uh, what year did you leave the school? Um, 1962. And did you enjoy your time there? Oh yeah, it was transformative really. Yeah, and, wild days at Habs. Uh, and who, who was the head of the school when you were at Habs? Thomas Taylor, Tom Taylor. And your, and your favorite known, teacher? Known as Spud actually, affectionately. <laughs> He looked like a potato, or I think that was the view. That's very unfair. <laughs> very unfair. He was a lovely man. He was an absolutely lovely man. He was very interested in parking. It's true. He had two great talents: his obsession with parking, and his genius for recruiting great teachers. Okay. Um, who were your favourite teachers, and what did they teach? Well, Roy Avery in history, Ian Lister in history, Robert Irvin Smith in history, um, Simon Stewart in English, um, Len Moody was a wonderful English teacher, uh, Mr. Wellborn, who we called Muffin in Latin, was a wonderful teacher, very gruff, but got us through the dullness of Caesar's campaigns. We also got to do, if we were good boys in Caesar, we got to do Catullus poems, which are hot and sexy. That was a different thing entirely. Um, should one assume that the person, the teacher you referred to as Muffin in Latin looked like a muffin? <laughs> following the theme. I don't know why he really didn't. I have no idea why we called him that. I should say, yeah, wonderful Otto Pasque, who I mentioned earlier. It's a French teacher who was a, a, just a superb French teacher. Maybe you and your fellow students were just very hungry and just kind of kind of put, a, put some kind of food. Uh, he was a bit, there was a, there was a children's program called Muffin the Mule. And um, Mr. Wilburn was slightly mulish, I have to say, you know, maybe it was that. 
Um, and have you kept in touch with your old schoolmates? Um, not that many. Very, my, uh, Martin Sorrell, um, uh, very famous um, businessman, um, head once head of WPP. Uh, Martin and I met at the Haberdashers and we're still extremely good friends. Our birthdays are one day apart. And um, and yeah, we that was that was a very important uh, friendship. A few others, not many. And any uh, recent accomplishments you'd uh, care to mention that perhaps we haven't mentioned already? Oh, I just you know um, producing. You know, um, my children are you know, and, and they. I mean, I'm not sure if you call them an accomplishment, but that's very important. My daughter is features editor of Vogue in America. My son is an incredibly gifted Gabriel Sharma, gabrielsharma.com everybody, incredibly gifted artist in California who's really having a triumphant career. Wonderful. I don't know if they count as accomplishments. They're accomplishments. <laughs> I think they all count, they all count. Right. So uh, well look, uh, Simon Sharma, uh, it's been so enjoyable and informative and eye-opening and fascinating to talk with you. So uh, Simon Sharma, historian, author, Columbia University professor, uh, sure. world record holder of detentions at Habs yeah. and Old Habs Boy, of course. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us on the Wheel Habs podcast. Pleasure. Okay. Bye. And uh, if anyone watching wants to uh, have more info about our guests or the school, you can visit uh, www.habsboys.org.uk or www.gotkin.com. Uh, you can follow us on your favourite social media at Habs or at Elliot Gotkin. Um, we'll be back again next time with another celebrated old haberdasher, and we do hope you will join us again then. Stay safe and well. Bye bye.